In a world that is rapidly changing, what should the roles of schools and public education be? What can we do to radically change our education system so that we prepare our students for the future? And what are some of the great schools doing to tackle these issues? Welcome to the Public Schools 360 podcast, hosted by Rana Arshid Hafiz. In this episode of Public Schools 360, we will discuss bilingual and dual language programs and their impacts on students. I have with me here, Angela Paxia and Dr. Aratna Mudambi. I will ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Angela Paxia and I'm the founder and president of Think Bilingual Austin. We're a local nonprofit organization in Austin, Texas, and we promote language learning and multicultural understanding as a way to bridge diverse communities together in the local area and beyond. Hi, I'm Aradhana Mudambi. I'm the uh, director of English for Speakers of Other Languages, Bilingual Education and World Languages at Wyndham Public Schools in Wyndham, Connecticut. So we are the, uh, we have the greatest percentage of bilingual students of the English learners in the uh, Connecticut State, and we also are the second largest percentage of English language learners in uh, the entirety of New England, Boston being the uh, largest. Aradna and Angela, why don't we start by telling our listeners what is actually the difference between bilingual and dual language education? Would would you like to start, Dr. Radna? I can start, sure. Um, So it's a It's more of a political difference. At one point, everything was bilingual education and bilingual education just took a political dive. So depending on the state and depending on the um, political atmosphere, we use the two different names, right? So oftentimes bilingual education is thought of as transitional, which means that we're actually using the bilingualism to transition kids from their home language to uh, English. Whereas in a dual program, what we're trying to do is build both of the languages that we're using. So both English and the target language, whether that be Spanish, Vietnamese, um, Mandarin, Portuguese, these are all used. But um, that's highly dependent on the state. Right. I mean, in Texas, it's the same thing. Bilingual education has the, it is really a transitional language bridging from the native language into English as quickly as possible. So a bilingual education may allow, for example, a a native Spanish speaker to have Spanish and maybe kindergarten and possibly a little bit in first grade, but the goal is to transition to all English as, as quickly as possible. Whereas a dual language, it's really maintaining and building on that native language while also adding English, um, alongside the native language. So they're adding English, you know, simultaneously with the Spanish um, right from the very beginning, from preschool or kindergarten, and that's maintained throughout. Right, so in the state of Connecticut, everything falls under the bilingual umbrella. So when we say, you know, bilingual education, we're including dual language. So the rule, um, for example, the law in Connecticut says that they can have up to 30 months of bilingual education with the exception of dual language programs where they can stay in it indefinitely. So truly both are considered to be bilingual programs. Dual is considered a subset of bilingual. So that's where I say it's, you know, it's nomenclature. It's just about, our objective is still for the kids to become bilingual, right? And dual programs. So it's still bilingual education, but it's what's going to be more popular amongst people, even though our goals, you know, in a dual program is for students to become bilingual. And I think that's a very clear thing that has to be made, um, well, it's something that needs to be made very clear upfront, what are the goals of the educational program? Is it to transition into English as quickly as possible, starting off with the native language, but then taking that away eventually? Or is it to continue that native language, continue that academic level and rigor in that native language throughout while also adding the English component. So I think, you know, the, what we find as um, a nonprofit that works with parents is that it's, 
it's very confusing for parents to know what it is that they're getting from their local school um, in terms of bilingual education. And so it, it's, it's not always clear. And even within the, the school district itself, sometimes it's not very clear what is their real goal. So you might be able to address a little bit more about your local level. Yeah, um, there are a couple of things, you know, Angela, that when you're talking that come to mind is one thing is just getting parents to know what, what's being offered, right? And that is something that's oftentimes not done. And parent goals can sometimes be different than school goals. Um, as far as the school is concerned, um, when, and when I say school, it's, I'm talking about the board, I'm talking about the public that votes um, for you know, your budget, all of that, it's about academic achievement, right? Mm -hmm. And they wanna know, the research shows us that students who are in dual programs will do better um, in English if they're in a dual program, and we're talking about ESL students, right? And right. This is, in addition to ESL students, even other students will actually do better on English exams than their peers who are in monolingual programs. And that's the most important thing. But oftentimes when you speak to parents whose native language is the target language, so um, in our district, that's Spanish. But when you talk to parents, it's about keeping the native language. That's their goal. Right. Um, keeping their culture is their goal. And so all of this falls into dual programming, whereas the traditional transitional bilingual program doesn't have that. Um, research shows, first of all, that their English, um, while they'll do better on uh, exams than peers who are in ESL programs, they won't necessarily, they won't close the achievement gap according to the research. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is that you're not preserving their home culture. You're not preserving their um, home language, their ability to speak to family. And that's you know, part of the goal of dual programming. Right. The other thing when we talk about um, the nomenclature is that dual language comes in a couple of different, um, I guess, packages. So our district, um, at the local level, we have both a one-way dual program, which is absolutely new to the state of Connecticut. Um, in modern times, we're the first ones to have a one-way dual program, and we have a two-way dual program. So the difference is that in a one-way dual program, the majority of students are native um, speakers of the target language, so in our case, Spanish. So they're all native Spanish speakers um, at different levels. They have Spanish as a home language is what we um, usually word it as. So some of them will be simultaneous bilinguals where they started off you know, speaking both languages before the age of five, Spanish and English. Some will only speak Spanish, but they all have Spanish as a background. Whereas, whereas in a two-way dual program, which we also have in our district, and that's actually an older program, we've had it since 1992, half the students are native English speakers and half the students are native Spanish speakers. So, and that's, uh, you know, the, it, the goals are the same, but it's a different, um, different package. Right. Yes. It, and it also depends, I imagine, on the sheer number of English language learners that you have to, you know, in a specific school. So if you have enough to basically do one way, then that makes the most sense. I think it's all about resources and, and what your demographics are. Um, Absolutely, but um, the problem has become, um, and this is outside of Texas, you know, I'm from Texas originally and I was uh, teaching in a one-way dual program and that was the norm if you had the numbers, right, as you right. say. Unfortunately, um, when you come up to New England, one-way dual language programs are much less common so a lot of times students who are, who would benefit from the program, who dual language, you know, bilingual programs were created for, don't get to be in one. And that's because of political, um, you know, it's political, right? So you get more support if you're offering it to the monolingual English speaking families. Now you have parents who will come out and support and parents who will fight for it, who speak the dominant language of um, society. And so one-way dual programs are fairly, well, they're completely new. I mean, we, we are the only one-way dual program right now. Okay. And so I just have a question. I mean, how many kids are in your one-way dual language program? Um, so we are, we are close to 30% EL students. And okay. so our program is extremely new. Uh, we are 
going into the fourth grade right now. So we're at okay. about three schools, um, three elementary schools where we have the program um, out of four elementary schools. And uh, yeah, so, and we are going to expand into fourth grade next year. So you can tell how new we are. Right, right. And so the dual language that's the two-way, is mm -hmm. it difficult to find those monolingual speakers to be interested? Or is it that there's just so much demand that it, that it um, crowds out the, those who can benefit the most? Um, the second one, what you said. Um, okay. There is a huge demand for it. And it's, a, it's an old program. It's something that's, you know, it, it had its time, right, when uh, people were not necessarily for it. But at this point, it's just become part of the fabric of the district. And we have a waiting list always. Wow. Okay. So this is really about equity in this sense of just main, really preserving the program and the resources for those that can benefit the most from it. Right. And that's what it was. It was an equity issue that um, when I joined uh, in my position as director and I saw the number of students who did not get into the bilingual program and who the program is actually, you know, formed for, that mm -hmm. it, it just, it, it, I couldn't understand how we didn't have a one-way dual program. Right, and right. I fortunately worked for a superintendent who completely understood when I uh, brought the issue of equity for, uh, to her and uh, supported my efforts to start the one-way dual program. So um, Angela and Aradna, let's talk a little bit about what is the impact of learning multiple languages on the brain and how does it support, uh, you know, all of us who speak multiple languages, we know that, you know, it, it changes the way we think about the world and, you know, just even how we think about the way we speak, we write. So what is the background um, on that for multiple languages? Angela, do you want to start this one? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a lot that's been talked about. And I mean, you can't read the news without seeing some glaring report about the benefits of bilingualism. But I think as a nonprofit, one of the things that we feel most important about brain development is really that social emotional development and cognitive, early cognitive development that's so crucial for um, that parent and family engagement with their child. So, you know, for us, there's all these great benefits of, you know, developing skills that can transfer into other skills, but the most important thing is that connection that they're able to make with their parents and the social emotional impact that that has um, because that in itself translate into better cognitive development. So you have to start at a space where you feel comfortable who you are and comfortable connecting with your, your family and your family heritage and your, the, where your place is in society. And once you're able to do that, then you are free to then continue growing exponentially in the cognitive aspects of, of who you are and who you will become. So when you're able to maintain your native language, that connection with your parents and with your community and, and creates a sense of identity. It creates a sense of self-worth. And also it allows parents to be part of the equation. I think when we talk about the, the transitional to English only, it really pushes the parents out and it devalues their native language. And it really turns the, you know, internally the balance of power upside down when, when the parents are no longer part of the education of their children and feel that empowered to continue um, building on the education. So I think to me, that's the most important part of the brain development is that social emotional impact. There's so much in that. Um, just the fact, you know, people forget that a lot of the growing that happens for children, the cognitive development doesn't happen just at school. It happens at home. A lot of the academic language, the conversations you have are with your parents, with your family members, um, deep conversations. And those deep conversations can only occur in the language you started talking in, right? You're still developing the other language. Right. So as you're pushing parents and family members and your society out, your home environment out, 
you're not able to have those conversations that are going to give you that cognitive development. Um, so that's something that people tend to forget, I think. The other thing when we talk about brain development is just the fact um, that people think that to be able to become bilingual, you have to be incredibly intelligent, incredibly um, able. Um, you can't have any kind of handicaps whatsoever. Um, you can't be average, like you can't be like the normal kid. And that's so much, so not true. It is the normal, you know, it's normal everywhere in the world. Right. Um, more than 50% of the world's population is bilingual. And so I, I know I hear at um, district levels, like, you know, and not just at the district where I work, where they say, well, this child is having trouble. So I don't think they should be in a bilingual program. But this child has executive function issues and therefore shouldn't be in a bilingual program. This child's in special ed and therefore should not be in um, a bilingual program. And all of these excuses are not true. Um, they have found, you know, it's, you're basically exercising your brain more if you are um, using more than one language. And so you get a higher density of gray matter where all those neurons and synapses are and that helps any student, um, regardless of whether or not you're in uh, special ed, regardless of whether or not you have some executive function difficulties. Um, the other thing they find when kids or when adults even are switching between languages, we're, you know, those of us who are multilingual, we're always suppressing one of our languages or suppressing part of it. And when doing that, that there's, they have found in brain imaging that there's more activity in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that's the area where all of the executive function happens. Right. And so when you're doing that, you know, just taking one example that I've heard is she has, you know, this child has executive function issues and therefore should not be there. But why would you not have a child with um, issues in executive function be in a program that develops that por por portion of the brain? Right, right. I mean, I think that's what the studies show, that there, there's a lot of benefits, cognitive benefits, and one is specifically in the executive um, right. functioning and being able to focus. But, you know, I think it goes back to it is exercising the brain. When you are able to find an activity, and what better activity than speaking right. two languages? I mean, yes, you can learn piano or, you know, mm -hmm. any musical instrument, or you can learn other skills that will also exercise the brain but this is something that can be done and used on a daily basis and absolutely. how wonderful is that mm -hmm. absolutely i mean this you know dual language programming any kind of um opportunity to become bilingual at any age should be embraced i mean if, if it's you know for so many reasons not just uh, brain development right they're you know just the fact that you can be exposed to more people, you can um, you can communicate with more people, you have a better understanding of people from different cultures than your own. Mm -hmm. So all of this comes in to, into play. Right. In fact, we did a, um, a research local um, polling to ask why people wanted to become bilingual. That was something we had, a, we were very curious, what were mm -hmm. people's reasons? Because, you know, there has been a lot of focus on the cognitive development, but the biggest reason by and far is the opportunity to connect with other people or their cultural heritage. So people learn language really to connect. And, um, and that is a, it, it far outweighs the, the benefits that, mm -hmm. that many people see in, in the cognitive development because we are social creatures. We want to connect mm -hmm. with, with, with others and with people who we we value. Angela, that's fascinating. Is um, who was interviewed for that? Who was surveyed? Um, we did a survey with a lot of people in different bilingual programs early on in our formation of our nonprofit. So, so were these students or were these adults? These were parents. I mean, these are parents. These are mainly parents. These were parents okay. uh, that had mm -hmm. children in bilingual programs. And we were wanting to know why they were interested mm -hmm. in promoting bilingualism for their children because we thought, oh, it's just because they want um, their children to, you know, have these cognitive advantages. But in reality, it was 
by far the, the biggest response was the opportunity to connect with others and making sure that they're, they valued it for themselves and they also wanted their children to have that same opportunity. You know, that's fascinating because without seeing a survey or a research study, and I'm excited to know that one exists, um, like informally, I can tell you that that's what I hear from parents. So it matches the research that y'all have done. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's, it's great. And um, so I, I think there is a lot of focus in the headlines about the, the brain, you know, mm -hmm. benef the benefits to the brain, the cognitive development. But that's why as an organization, we really focus on the building community um, because building community and bringing people together is, is really mm -hmm. what it's about. I think, right. and that's why language is a, is a is a tool we see to to bridge communities, diverse communities, rather than um, focusing on the look at all these great benefits to your brain. So that that brings me to you know I'm curious about what are the political and social aspects of learning languages because languages certainly have hierarchies, particularly with our colonial heritage all over the world. So what is the political and social aspects of various languages? The, uh, Angela, did you want to go or? I can... um, you know, it's been fascinating because I, I am, my background is in uh, policy. And so mm -hmm. what I find is, is it really, there's so many social political aspects and it really depends on the current situation. Um, right now we're in a, in a new time. A, a few years ago when we started Think Bilingual, it, it was very much, hey, we're a global society. This is, this was like a no brainer. And now we're, we're a society that's really looking inwardly. And, mm -hmm. um, and there's always been this English only aspect of, of, um, the United, in the United States, but not necessarily as long as we think. And um, if I may share um, something that just came out, uh, I, being in Texas or I'm in the Hill Country, we are um, an area that was primarily, um, had a lot of immigrants from Germany back in the 1830s. They started for, and they left Germany for political social reasons, persecution. And so we have areas called New Braunfels and Fredericksburg and Green, Texas, and all these interesting this German heritage here that's alive and the German language and the written language stayed alive until World War II. So you think about that's a hundred years of language preservation and written language. There were newspapers written in German. Actually, and, um, Angela, I was in Fredericksburg uh, in the nineties when, uh, you know, I told you I was from, I'm from Houston originally. And I did, I remember doing a history fair paper, um, exactly about what you're talking about right now about the German immigrants in Texas. Mm -hmm. And even uh, in the nineties, if you went into the library and when you talked to people there, many of them still spoke German. Um, you still saw signs in the library that were bilingual German and English. Right. So, so what, what they did. It hasn't gone away, and there's a resurgence of claiming their heritage, the German heritage, and, and the language. There's a resurgence in teaching the language, but it almost died out. In fact, there's a special um, report by the Texas Standard. You know, it's a uh, local, uh, like an NPR kind of mm -hmm. uh, public service news source. And they realized that the people who spoke Texas German, Texas German mm -hmm. being a dialect that was created by all these immigrants that came from different parts of Germany, and they created and formed their own dialect. And they could still speak to German speakers uh, from Germany, but it became its own, own dialect and um, with different forms of grammar and different words and so forth. So what's interesting is that that is dying out and there are still speakers, but more and more the people who can read and write that is, they're dying out. And, and, and you look at the catalyst for that, and I say the social political aspect was World War II when it became illegal to teach German. 
And so, you know, you look at that and then you have parallels in California where they completely outlawed bilingual education until more recently. You know, there are political and social consequences depending on public opinion at the time. And I that's think there's long lasting. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I'm saying that's definitely there, but I think the political aspect is also not just at um, the legal level, right? Right. Um, you know, like Massachusetts up here in New England also had, you know, just recently brought bilingual education back. And uh, so you've seen that at the at that level, but even when it is legal, um, there's a political aspect that's going on, you know, in Connecticut, for example, it's completely legal to have dual programs. It's research proven. And yet there's a political level um, in, in the, at the local level that makes right. getting the dual programming difficult. And that's, you know, part of it is what you said. It's um, just how we are at the moment, right? Right now we have more of a nationalistic outlook. However, a lot of it, this has been going on for a very long time. Um, there's a book written by Jean Romano who uh, started the two-way dual program back in the 90s. And she talks about her experience in Wyndham and a lot of uh, what was happening back then when you think that, you know, oh, bilingual was popular, it, you know, it's the local level still had, had difficulties right. with it. Well, it's a public opinion. And especially mm -hmm. when you're imposing something legally on a monolingual society that mm -hmm. just doesn't really understand it. You know, there's a huge amount of fear that goes into it. We're, we're right now in the midst of a lot of fear um, and uncertainty, and then also understanding possibilities. And I think that's where there has to be change on the local level in the public opinion for it, in education, education of what is possible, mm -hmm. how to mitigate these fears with, with data, but not just data, but also outreach. And that's another part of what we do here locally in Austin is uh, really trying to educate families, educate um, boards of trustees, you know, local school districts, uh, administrators. Also, another level um, when you bring up administrators is the fear, right? I'm a right. monolingual administrator, and now suddenly my students are, you know, I go into a classroom and my students are speaking a language I don't speak. Right. And that itself brings about a different level of politics in uh, at a local level. Right. Uh, people who are monolingual and who don't want it, and people who in general are like, you know, my grandparents came to this country from Italy or from Poland or, you know, wherever it is, from Germany. Um, there was no bilingual program for them. So why, why are we doing this? And look at me, I'm the grandchild and I'm doing just fine. Um, right. So there's that, you know, individual level also that, that comes to play. There right. is also the issue of what does assimilation really mean, which seems mm -hmm. to be at the crux of a lot of these political conversations that people have, you know, what is actually assimilation? Does assimilation mean really giving up your own culture and identity? And certainly languages are embedded in cultural identity. And as we see it all over the world, mm -hmm. or is it an amalgamation of what you bring, the richness of your heritage combined with the heritage of a new place you might be in well I think that's where we are in the society as in society today I mean we've had an influx of immigrants um, from in the past two couple of decades and there has been this rise up of fear what does that mean to our current society what what are they doing what are they changing what aspects are they changing and I think that's the political fear mm -hmm. that you see today rising up and really creating this division right now. Um, I think what people need to understand is it's not saying no to English, right? right. Um, it's not saying, no, we're not going to have people learn English and be part of, of, a, of a larger English speaking society. It is about adding richness and adding a level of, um, of, skills and attributes that are not here. But that's scary for people who don't understand that. And I think that's 
the thing that we need to talk more about in these types of programs. It's more than that. I think there is a fear of the other. It's even it is a fear of the other, English, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're preserving. You're preserving the English. However, you're also preserving the otherness. Right. And I think there is definitely from talking to people, from um, seeing things at you know the ground level, um, there's that you want to get rid of the other. Mm -hmm. There, yeah. there's that desire. You may, you know, the reason that you, it was interesting. We had a conversation and a lot of, a lot of our conversation is about elevating the status of Spanish um, with our teachers. And something that somebody did bring up was the fact that, well, if you get rid of the language, then you can become American. It's when you keep the language that you're not. Right. And that's yeah. just a feeling that people have. Um, it's a belief that people have. The more I can get rid of whatever, you know, I came, whatever, wherever I came from, the more American I become. And that's a feeling that people whose ancestors have accomplished that feel as well. And you're right. I mean, it's, we're in right now a situation of, of, well, a pandemic and I think this kind of goes hand in hand with how people are feeling about the mm -hmm. other there is this natural feel fear of contagion what are they going to bring if they don't look like us if they don't act like us like us if they don't speak like us what changes and, and there is that fear of the other and I think that's why why I personally also like the tool to dual sorry the two two-way, two sorry, two-dual, mm -hmm. two-way dual language, if I could get that out there, right? Um, the two-way dual language program, because it does add to the understanding of who that other is. And now you're bringing other people who mm -hmm. may have a fear now embracing and saying, okay, I can embrace this. And this is also going to be part of, of who I am as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, one reason why it's important to make language learning accessible to all people, but at the same time, it has to be done in a form of equity, because if Absolutely. you only have a finite number of resources, uh, we also have to make sure that the people who can benefit the most will benefit. Absolutely. But, um, but I do like adding people and bridging, because it does bridge. It bridges understanding, it bridges compassion, empathy, oh. If if we do it um, intentionally, right? Intentionally. That we definitely talk about, um, you know, one of the goals of dual language programming is sociocultural competence. Right. But sociocultural competence doesn't come just from learning a language, you know, textbook-wise. There has right. to be an actual conversation that occurs. Right, right. And that's why I, I do like the two-way dual language, because it brings those people together up to different cultures and two different languages and, and balances that on an equal level and learning about the culture and the social, and, and you're absolutely right. The cultural competency mm -hmm. is, is very important and has to be implicit. I mean, it's explicit. It can't just be something along the side. And, and that's where we talk it about. Be, it can't be that we brought, you know, we have this balanced class and therefore we assume it's going to happen. Right. 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 It, exactly. It happen through but also, we are at a very unique historical time. Like if you think about it, for most of the world, the context of two languages has been where one is the language of the oppressor and one is the language of the oppressed, mm -hmm. right? But this is the right. first time I feel in, in, in the history of our human beings times when language is actually, you know, we are, we are taking those political ramifications of language learnings, if it can be done in some way away from it. You mm -hmm. know, there is active second language learning, not from a hierarchy perspective, but from a perspective of understanding other people. I think that's what is so exciting about much of the work around language learning now. And I think what's also important to know is that there's a narrative of what is American, right? Mm -hmm. But what is American is really dependent on where your ancestors ended up. Um, you know, Texas, I gave the example of the German heritage. Well, you had, this was part of, this was Mexico before it was the United States. And so you had this long history of Spanish 
speaking speakers here long and then also native indigenous speakers here long before you had English. So when we talk about what is America and what is the American identity and culture, we often erase this idea of the other people other than you know European, especially English speaking Europeans, mm -hmm. and 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 create that as an idea of, of, of who America was, but that's never who America really was. And so in a way it's taking back the story of who America is and all the immigrants that have contributed and the languages that they've continued to speak. And I think it's worthwhile to say that we've been a multilingual society for, for hundreds of years. And it really wasn't until the rise of nationalism from the world two world wars mm -hmm. that we had at the beginning of last century that really pushed us and galvanized us to more of an English only society. Um, so, and, you know, one of the things that when I was starting the one way dual program, I started with exactly that, the fact that bilingual programming did not start with Spanish in this country. Right. Um, and that's something that people don't realize It actually started with German, mm -hmm. <laughs> German, it started with German and there were, um, French English schools in Louisiana, right. Spanish and, um, English was there in New Mexico. Um, but we have, for a very long time, valued the home language. It's now that we don't want to do it anymore. Um, and Rana, I think you're right. It is coming back, but there's a push-pull that's still happening. Mm -hmm. And that we have to be careful of. Um, we haven't won yet, right? Um, there are still, it, it's still an issue. We have the seal of biliteracy. Does Texas have seal of biliteracy at this we point? We do. We do. Okay, yeah. Great. So that's been going around. But nationwide, what we found is that the seal of biliteracy is not honoring people for keeping their home language as much as it is for people taking languages as a second language. Mm -hmm. It's become a world language award. And that wasn't the intent, right? Right. So right. even when you have people who are, you know, monolingual English, English speakers who are learning new languages, are we making sure that we're preserving home languages for other students, right? For students who have a different home language. And that's a question, you know, it's about, again, it goes back to equity. Are we making exactly. sure, or is it something that is getting usurped by a different community? And what's really interesting about it is when we think about finite resources and what mm -hmm. serves us as a society economically, I mean, it serves us to keep native speakers maintaining their native language and rather than remove their language and then later add the right. language it, it just makes more sense to to keep it early on because those language skills benefit everybody i mean that has been an issue for our society by far is is there's been a big concern the fact that we are too monolingual and um i think there was a report in 2017 that looked at you know our our place in the in in globally you know from a national security mm -hmm. perspective and economic perspective um, that if we don't add languages as part of our or multi-languages as part of our um, society that we are going to miss out because the world is too small there are too many issues and if we don't have people who can speak those languages to connect with other countries or especially in other fields. So whether it's in the medical field, like what we're seeing right now, you know, not having Mandarin speakers in the medical field or other uh, speakers that can work cross uh, culturally with other um, organizations, we're missing out um, because then we're relying on them to tell us what they're doing in English. And so having- It's not these, just that though, Angela, um, because that can go back to, you know, emphasizing the idea of having world language rather than uh, bilingual programs that support our emerging bilinguals. But the other aspect is the, just the fact there's research out there that when kids' minority language, kids, speakers of minority languages are not, their language is not valued in the school, there's a greater um, high school dropout, mm -hmm. um, which means, and that, that affects us all economically, right? Right, absolutely. At, at a nation, as a nation. Um, students don't achieve as much. They don't end up going to college. 
Mm -hmm. So, I mean, looking at these kind of things, that, that's, again, an economic loss when students are not able to economically support themselves, when right. students drop out of school. And, you know, it, we have this tendency of thinking it, well, yeah, that, that's them. But the fact is that affects the entirety of our economy. Absolutely. Yes. And, and you're right. I mean, in a way, it's saying we value world languages only when you are older and you've actually proved yourself and then you can learn your language. You know, it's, it's, that's the backwards approach and it really shouldn't be if we were taking a more equity stance on, we understand, especially um, native speakers who may be coming in at a social economic disadvantage. Mm -hmm. They need that support to be able to be more productive members of our society by maintaining their educational goals and so forth. And by encouraging them and building on that, they then achieve way more efficiently Absolutely. what we're trying to achieve as a society. Um, you know, in our so, own district, the last couple of years, the students who have been valedictorian and have gone through the two-way dual program. Excellent. And they were actually English, um, they were considered emergent bilingual from the beginning. Yeah, so, no, that's wonderful. Um, so we see that, you know, we can see that when students have that opportunity, when students who are, you know, speak a minority language have that opportunity, they excel, they far excel, you know, past other students. But when we don't give it to them, there's an achievement gap. Right. And well, we're creating that achievement gap. That, that's, that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, what people have to understand. We're creating the achievement gap for our students right. when education is supposed to close it. Right. And, and I think this circles back to the social emotional development of, a, of an individual, because if Absolutely. the child does not feel that they belong, if they do not feel that they are valued, they will not feel compelled because it's like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. You know, they, right. so when they do feel valued and they feel, and the parents feel valued and a part of the education, that's when you see the children take mm -hmm. off and, and really do amazing things. So I think, it, it kind of circles back to what do we know about social human development? Mm. And, um, and so the, the studies and the research mm. kind of correlates with that. And the other thing that we have to remember is that society is giving them a message, mm -hmm. you know, giving students a message that we have to counteract. Right. Um, it's amazing. Our kids, as young as pre-K and our two-way dual program starts at pre-K, and we see Spanish speaking children, they don't, they are not dominating English. They actually do, um, they're Spanish dominant and they will refuse to speak in Spanish. So these are three and four year olds who are right. already learning that right. their home language is devalued in society. Right. Yes. So, and that, that's huge. Mm -hmm. That's huge that children that young are realizing that. And so they are internalizing the racism that's out there. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm putting that very bluntly. They're internalizing racism when they are refusing to speak their own language. Right. Yes. And, they, mm -hmm. they see that it's not as valued and they are mm -hmm. trying to fit in into society. It's, it's very innate. And in, right. I think our social makeup that we want to feel like we're a part. And that's where mm -hmm. I go back to that balance of power that, mm -hmm. with the parents, because if the parents don't speak English and the children feel pressure to learn English, then they're also looking down at their parents and that connection, that close connection that should be formed starts to break down. So the other um, thing what you just triggered me um, to think of is the fact that, you know, when we're talking about politics and we're talking about parents not having the uh, language skills to be able to communicate, we have to allow parents to come to the board to talk to the schools um, in their home language. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that's really important for dual, you know, when you talk about the politics behind it. Right. Because guess who can, you know, if we're insisting that all of this happens in English mm -hmm. or, and we're not encouraging, we may not be insisting, but we're not encouraging parents to come and speak in their home language and providing translators for those who can't understand them. Um, then we're perpetuating that political stance against bilingual education, against dual language education. Absolutely. And you're keeping mm -hmm. the parents on the, in the margins. You know, you're mm -hmm. not empowering them to be right. active participants, which 
you know, affects the child's education. You know, another thing um, that I want to bring up, and it's kind of, I, I'm going out of, you know, where we're talking about is just the legal aspect. I think we, we started there. Um, but, you know, whether or not bilingual education is state approved at the moment, um, there's, you know, a federal law. We, you're supposed to be going through the Castaneda's three-part test, right, to check your emergent bilingual programs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one is educational soundness. It has to be recognized by experts in the field. And yes, there are ESL programs that are recognized by experts. Um, so we, we can leave that alone. And then it has to be resourced adequately. And that's what we were talking about, you know, just to make right. sure that resources are equitably um, distributed. Right. But then the other thing is that we have to be evaluating the results to ensure that language barriers are actually overcome. Right. And the thing is, the research has already shown us, and it's played out in our district, because we have seen it in our um, two-way dual program, which has lasted for so much longer, so we have the data that the only program that actually ensures that students overcome language barriers is dual language. Yes, I know. That's amazing. So honestly, legally, that, you know, if you take it all the way there, you can say legally that's our only option. Right. Now, it hasn't played out that way. However, if you really analyze it, that is our only option. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you know, one of the things that we're dealing with here in Austin is that when, when dual language came out, there was this big rush to put it in as many schools in Austin as, as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. But we also had the issue of, of the um, fidelity to the model um, because it became an issue of resources. It became an mm -hmm. issue of understanding how the model should work. And, and also the other incentive of teaching to the test um, mm -hmm. and getting the test scores up as quickly as possible in English. And so what you had and what we're still working through um, as a district is weeding out programs that call themselves dual language, but they're actually transitional bilingual programs that mm -hmm. are moving kids sometimes as early as first grade into an English only program. Right, right. So, absolutely so, not dual programs. Yeah, we uh, similar things have happened in Connecticut as well. Yeah, and and that's really left parents, uh, you know, off guard because they thought they were in a dual language mm -hmm. program. What the expectations and how to really have a voice if they don't if they're not able to speak to um, the district and their native language, mm -hmm. and how do they ensure? Mm -hmm. And then what what is the what is the role of the school in communicating their fidelity to the model to the parents. And I think those are things that we're as a district in Austin working through and trying to say, let's call it what it is. What are your resources? Mm -hmm. What are, who, who are you working with? What are your student demographics? And then let's first call it what it is rather than call it dual language and that you're really doing a transitional right. program. And I think that's a nationwide, it's not just in Austin. Um, Cause you know, when I've gone to, you know, nationwide conferences like Cosecha and um, Nabe, similar conversations occur with every state. And so okay. there needs to be a clear understanding. And I think calling it what it is, part of it is just that people don't understand what dual language is. And it's educating the public as to what the program is, talking about the three goals of uh, dual language and then the non-negotiables. Right. Um, that's really important that people understand the separation of language that needs to occur, you know, with, with the exception, of course, of intentional bridging. We need to talk about how it needs to be at least a six-year program. Right. They that is key, right? Yeah. And then also and looking... Then, um, the percentage of time that you spend in each language that you have to have at least 50%. It can be more, but at least 50% in the target language, in the non-English language. Right. And that's an issue as well, where people start to decrease the English. No, you can't get, unless you're starting at a 90-10 program, which is fine, and you go down to 50%. But if you're starting at a 50%, you can't continue to move that down. Right, right. And, and that's something that we're looking at. Even with a bilingual program, we found that people who call themselves doing the transitional program, they may only do 20% um, in the, the Spanish and they're calling themselves bilingual. So right. it's 
we're, I think that's, if anything, the message that we have to get to parents and the public is what is the program that they're signed up for? And is it being administered correctly? Well, not just and, the public, um, not just public and parents, but you have to get that to administrators. Right. You know? Um, I can tell you being the director of the program. Yes, I know, but I have to make sure that the rest of the district knows what the program is. Um, otherwise it starts to become past practice. It's, oh, but we did this before. So this must be okay. Or that we did No, you did that back when you had a transitional program, you know? Um, so educating every, all stakeholders is really important. Right. And, and with that, I just wanted to add with that education is also creating the right incentives because mm -hmm. if it is an incentive to focus on the testing, especially the testing in English, that creates a distortion, um, right. a, a distorted incentive essentially for the administrators because they're having to work with, well, we want to get these test scores up as quickly as possible to get the funding, mm -hmm. but we also want to try to maintain this dual language narrative. And so I think part of the scorecard should be looking at what it takes to make a successful dual language. And then, mm -hmm. like you said, six years, I think that's the other aspect is if you can track these kids, you know, you might find that the test scores are lower earlier on just because they're learning two languages. And so if they're taking a test in they overtake. Yeah, they overtake by the test. Yeah. So I, mean, I think this happens. Yeah. So the long-term Mm -hmm. uh, view has to be also incorporated in the incentives of, of how schools and programs are being judged. And that goes back to educating our state um, departments, right? Mm -hmm. And getting them to understand that the tra bilingual trajectory is different than a monolingual trajectory and to use that trajectory to measure state exams. Um, at least in Texas, there's the, always the choice, right, of using Spanish or English, at least right. Right. Actually, um, I would argue that that, you know, um, education, always good education manifests itself only in the long term. Absolutely. So, like, you know, even whether it's, um, you know, monolingual program or bilingual program, mm -hmm. we know that whenever you have uh, you have been short sighted in education and only targeted the exam for tomorrow, it never is sustainable. So yeah, absolutely. You shouldn't be teaching, teaching to a test. That's yeah. just not good. Not, that's not good teaching, right? Yeah, basically. Thank you so much, Aradna. Thank you so much, Angela. This has been a fascinating conversation. And, uh, you know, I hope we all um, have a better idea of what uh, what are some advantages uh, of learning multiple languages and how we think about the offerings in the, our school systems. Thanks a ton. Thank you, Thank Anna. You. Thank you.